0: all right we've got the last part now we have come to the end of the journey and what i want to do the rest of this material i'm going to walk us through uh self-explanatory it doesn't require as much detail so you can kind of relax your brain a little bit and we just kind of cruise through the rest of this together and hopefully give you some things to think about uh we're going to look at letter m and we're going to move from letter m to the end of our information for today now starting at letter m The overall biblical counselors are to lead counselees into something. Overall, if we break this stuff down, this is what you're going to always be doing no matter whom you are counselling. Number one, gaining a biblical understanding of God and submitting to God's will accordingly. This is what your counselees need. There's something about God they don't understand. You're going to give them what the Bible says and then show them how to submit themselves accordingly. That is always going to be something that your counselees need. Would you agree or disagree? Doesn't matter who you're dealing with. That's always going to be. That's one of those universal things that happens. Secondly, your counselee will need to gain a biblical understanding of themselves and submit to God's will accordingly. Tell me when they're not going to need that. So every time you're dealing with a counselee, they're going to need understanding of God and how to submit to his will. They need to get a true understanding of themselves, not who they think they are, but who they really are and how they can submit to God accordingly. But thirdly, they will need to gain a biblical understanding of others and submit to God's will accordingly. We have the wrong view of people. We tend to see them as our little objects to satisfy us. And when you reduce people to your agenda, you're very frustrated all the time. Because think about this. How many of you know people are flaky? Has anybody figured it out yet? You know that, right? You know why you know people are flaky? Because you're flaky. Okay, if you get honest, you don't follow through on half the stuff that you say you're gonna do as well, but it's always different when it's you. Have you noticed that? When it's you, you want grace. When it's everybody else, you want judgment, right? Once you learn that, you start to recognize, okay, with all my inconsistencies and the inconsistencies of others, I need to learn how to see people as God sees them, try, not try to get people to please you, but get people to please God. And so your counselees need this understanding of people. But fourthly, your counselees will need to gain a biblical understanding of life situations and circumstances and submit to God's will accordingly. What does that mean for you and I? Here's what that means. This is what I try to teach people. You need to learn to enjoy the people in your life and endure the people in your life, but stop living for the people in your life. Does that make sense? Enjoy them, endure them, stop living for them. What does that mean to stop living for them? Stop making your world revolve around the attitudes and personalities of everybody in your life. You can't be happy unless you get your way. You're always upset when they don't do this. You're always focused on what they're doing and not doing. Your whole world is determined by their decisions. Stop living like that. That's worship. Enjoy people. Endure people. Live for Jesus Christ. So when you have a good day with people, praise the Lord. When you have a bad day with people, oh Lord, thank you. It's not always like this they're getting on my nerves. Lord, help me to adjust my attitude. But my life revolves around you, Lord, not around this person, this personality. When we start to do that, then we say to people, stop living for circumstances, enjoy them and endure them, but stop living for them as well. Live for Jesus Christ. Do you know that's the secret to contentment? Paul said, when I had a lot, I enjoyed a lot. When I had a little, I lived with little. But at the end of the day, I could do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What does that mean? I can do everything I want. I believe I can fly and I can make that happen because I do, you know, no. What that means is I can, through Christ, learn to live with a little or live with a lot. I can adjust my desires to fit my situation. When I have a lot, I can adjust my desires to a joy a lot. When I have a little, I will adjust my desires to, to live with a little. Why? Because I don't live for what I have and don't have. I live for Jesus Christ. That's the secret of contentment. That's the secret of how we change our lives. And so part of my pattern with people is to help them to see how much their own ambitions drive them in their relationships with others. And so you can't be happy You're always sad because this person didn't do this or they did that. And so your whole counseling discussion is always about this person and this circumstance because your life has become too small. And when your life is small, it's focused on what you think you need and what you want. And guess what you think you need and what you want is always tied to? People and... So they become your little gods. God's. And your whole attitude changes up and down because of them. We've got to get people to see that's a unbiblical way of living. Enjoy, endure, live for Jesus Christ. You say, okay, how do I do that? Okay. Practical way you do that is when things are bad, it's okay to be disappointed. But accept what God allows and submit to what God has ordained according to your responsibility. That's how you do it. Okay, today my husband disappointed me. I'm a little sad behind it, but what is my responsibility with my husband today? And that's what I will do even in my sadness. I will accept what God has allowed. I will endure this pain, but I will be responsible to do what I'm called to do. Okay, my wife disappointed me, my boss, my children. Doesn't matter who it is or what it is. I will accept what God has allowed while I submit to what God has commanded according to this role and responsibility as I endure the day of disappointment. But I live for Christ in my disappointment by following what he's commanded me to do in my role and responsibility. Now, is that generic, guys, or is that specific? That's the kind of thing we have to give people, and we set them up. This week, your wife or your sister, your boss, your friends, they're going to disappoint you. They're not going to give you what you want. What will you do now? Let's think it through. What is your responsibility? How do you show love? What specific thing will you say or do to show love this week when that happens? Because it's going to happen. When you disappoint and fail someone, what will you do? How will you humble yourself in the presence of God and that person? How will you seek forgiveness? Let's walk this through before the week begins. So now we're giving them a biblical understanding of God, a biblical understanding of people's circumstances, a biblical understanding of themselves, and a way to submit to God's will accordingly. Everyone you counsel, they're going to need that all the time. There's never a time where they won't need that. So for you and I, we've got to begin to think, okay, this week, how will I enjoy and endure but yet be responsible? That means I've got to know my roles and responsibilities. You know, what I I do with men, I mentor a lot of men. I'll say, okay, guys, make me a list of every hat that you have. I'm a husband, I'm a father, church member, um, employer, I'm a a uh, friend, I'm a cousin, I'm an uncle. Now just give them to write all these things out. I said, okay, great. What is God's commandment in each one of these roles? And where God is not given a commandment, where can we see scripture that can help us to pull something together in these roles? Now, what do you think is God's priority of what should come first in all these things you have? Now let's organize this over a seven-day period And let's put all these roles to the left. And let's look at Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And now let's lay out what you will do according to what God has commanded for this week in these areas. And then each week, I want to talk with you about accountability. Is that generic? You see where I'm going? We got to get out of fuzzy land. We've got to get into specifics in the lives of people so that they become doers. So then I've got a guy in my my, uh, church now every week. He has a calendar. He has all his roles and responsibilities. And he has Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. So one Sunday, he's telling me, this is what I plan to do for the week. The next Sunday, he's giving me the same sheet of what he didn't and did do and what he's going to do to make up the difference on the next Sunday. And you know what happens when I don't get that sheet on Sunday? He's getting the phone call from the pastor. And they don't like when I call you see where I'm going and these men know I'm going to hold you accountable we're not going to deal in fuzzy land you need to tell me specifically how you're going to love your wife this week how you're going to be a father this week how you're going to be a coworker, a church member and what you did and didn't do what distracted you and why and was it a priority or not was it something beyond your control or not Why? Because we are called as people to live lives that are disciplined and orderly. And so we want to help our counselees to learn this. All right, let's take a look at letter N. Letter N. Now, here is where many of you, I hope, can really start to evaluate the people you're counseling. Because you'll discover in counseling there are four basic personalities of people you counsel. Let's take a look at those. Number one, those who lack knowledge on what to do in a situation don't know what to do, period, okay? I like these people. It's not a lot of drama with them. They just need some information. Does that make sense? Second type of person, I like them too. There's not a lot of drama with them. Number two, those who have knowledge but lack skill on how to apply the knowledge to this situation, know what to do but don't know how to do it, in relation to the situation see that's beautiful too you know what to do you just don't know how to do it okay that's less that's drama free that's just beautiful okay we don't have to take a lot of time now this third joker those who have knowledge and have skill on how to apply the knowledge to the situation but refuse to apply what they know to the situation know what to do and how to do it but refuse to do what they know in the situation For a Christian, there's only three reasons for disobedience. Only three. And these are the three. Either you don't know, or you know and don't know how. You know and know how, but you're being stubborn or rebellious. There's only, when it's a Christian, it's only those three reasons why a Christian is not obeying. So when you're in a counseling session, you start evaluating, you go, hmm, which one is this person? Let's look at the fourth one. The fourth one is an unbeliever, okay? Those who have knowledge, I'm sorry, those who lack knowledge and lack skill on how to apply the knowledge to their situations and are not interested in gaining either, don't know what to do or how to do it and are not interested. That's an unbeliever. That's sometimes when a parent says, here, counsel my kid, okay? Or that spouse that brings that other spouse to counseling, if you don't come, I'm gonna leave you. So they're there, but they don't wanna be there. They're under duress, But they have no interest, no, could care less. They're just following orders so the person won't leave the house. So when you're dealing with these people, you got to ask the question what am I dealing with here? Because you're not going to do the same thing with everybody. Does that make sense? So you want to look at a counselee and say, okay, this is just a knowledge person. They just need some information and they can take it from there. They'll know how to apply it, they'll know what to do. Or they don't need any more information, they need application. Let me show them how to do this. Oh, I've got just a good old-fashioned, stubborn, rebellious person right now. This may move into church discipline. Because they don't lack knowledge or skill. They lack the will. And when I'm counseling people, and I say, let me get this straight. You understand what you're supposed to do, right? Yes. And you know how to do it, right? Yes. So can you explain to me why we're sitting in my office right now? So the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is within you. You have the power because he tells us in Philippians to work out because he's working within. And you have the wisdom. So why are we here again? So you're just not going to do... What you have the ability to do? Sir or ma'am, that's just rebellion. And I have nothing that I can offer you at this point other than if you refuse to repent, church discipline is at hand. And I want to give you seven days to think about this. And we're going to come back in seven days. And if within seven days you're not willing to do what it takes, understand that as pastor, I have to do church discipline because I can't have a little leaven leavening the whole lump. Because you don't lack knowledge or skill, you lack will, you won't do this. And we can't have that attitude in this local assembly. It's unacceptable according to scripture. Does that make sense guys? But we run into this, don't we? And we keep trying to give these people homework and they won't do it. And it's not because they don't know and have the skill, They're like that song, I should not be moved. (laughs) Hmm? And we've got to lovingly rebuke now. Matthew 18 has to come to play. All right, before we go any further, take just a couple of minutes. Review letter M and review letter N. And then we'll move into letter O. We'll begin to move. Okay, gang, let's take a look at letter O. When is it time to graduate someone from counseling? A lot of times you hear that term, oh, we've graduated them. And what I like to do with my trainees is to say, okay, what is the specific timing? What are the elements that are, how can I put this, more objective than subjective that determines that this person is ready for graduation because sometimes I think we can graduate people prematurely and there's a difference between graduating and terminating you guys know that right okay terminating means that you're unwilling to do what needs to be done and so we can't move forward in the process graduating you're doing what needs to be done let's look at these areas so we can identify when it's time to release or graduate a person from counseling. Number one, these are the three things that we'll see. The counselor understands their problem from a biblical perspective. That's number one. You don't stop there, but that's one of the key elements. Number two, the counselor understands the biblical solution to their problem. So watch this. They know what the situation is, not from a psychological, but from a biblical perspective they understand the tools that they need biblically to apply to change or address their issues. And then number three, the counselee consistently applies the principles to address their problems, to put off sin and to put on what is right, resulting in living out and practice what they have learned. You see them applying the principles not just one time, not just two times, but more of a consistent pattern and here's what I mean they consistently apply it when they fail they're able to get back up and put it back to practice does that make sense so they fall down they get up and they keep moving okay you are ready for graduation we don't need to have these sessions anymore because you know the problem you know the solutions you're putting it to practice Graduation is inevitable now, praise God. Let's meet once a month, let's meet every other month, let's meet once a quarter, let's meet once every six months, let's meet once a year. You see how we just start gradually just moving it out because now we need to move to some more people that we can start to deal with the issue because they're not where they are. So if we learn this model, we can be specific in when a person is released. Now I wanna take all of this and give you some practical ways when you're in a counseling session, seven things that you can begin to do in a counseling session. We're talking about different policies and practices, but when you're in a counseling session, seven practices to try that I think could help the flow of the session. Let's take a look at some of those together. Number one is commend submission. What do we mean by that? congratulate the person in the areas they're seeking to do right do the right thing in relation to the situation compliment the person in areas they refuse to do the wrong thing in relation to the situation so they're talking to you in the counseling and they're telling you all that's going on you can say well you know i'm so glad that you didn't pick up the gun and shoot him (laughs) you know that was wonderful that you took the clips out and put it back you know I'm you know that was great that you didn't do that and I'm so glad that instead of slapping him you you spoke a kind word that I mean I just want to commend you on that I mean the littlest of things it doesn't matter something that they've done right or something they chose not to do wrong that goes a long way in the counseling session and they're going really yes because you could have hit him with the bat and you didn't praise God You know, whatever it is, it's just you're commending them on either doing something right or not doing something wrong. So when you're dealing with a person, think about that. Well, what is it that I can see that they're doing right or they didn't do wrong? And let's commend them on that, okay? That's one thing. You with me so far? Okay, the second thing, console suffering. Console suffering. Connect with the pains of the sufferer. Consider the peace God can bring to the sufferer. You know, d- don't overlook an opportunity to put your arm around someone to get immediately to the sin issue. You know, there's some things that, that are going on. Sure, they've done some wrong things. Sure, there's some things happening. But look for those unbiblical re- or unneutral or neutral responses where it's not a sin, but they're sad. And before you move on, just sit, and just, just sit there and hold their hand if necessary. Put your arm around them. But allow yourself time to embrace the pain with them. And when I don't know what a person's going through, I don't fake it. I say, you know what? I don't understand. And I cannot imagine the sorrow you have right now. But what I would like to do is to support you in this sorrow right now. Can I come around from that desk and just at least sit by you and give you a hug? Would that be okay? Because I can't say I truly get your pain, but I'm with you here. And what happens is that person says, okay, and so I'll sit with them, put my arms around them, or will just sit there, and we may just sit, and they may just cry, and I'll just keep giving them tissue, and we just sit there for a while because it may not be time to move on. But what they've understood from me is I'm here for you, and we're going to work this thing out together. And it becomes a wonderful time to show people we're not just going to deal with sin, we're also going to deal with your suffering. Okay. So not only will we commend submission, console suffering, then we have to do some of the hard part. Confront sin. And what does that mean? Call out the sin with compassion. Challenge the sin with care. A true loving counselor is not going to ignore the sin. They're going to confront it, but they will be gentle. Okay? Okay? Now, do this for me for a moment. And this is gonna sound weird, but just go with me. What do you got to lose? It's almost over, right? Mm-hmm. Write down right now, and this is just your own little list, the five things that irritate you the most about somebody else. Okay? And this is not for anyone to see, it's just for you. Write down, these are the five things that really gripes me about someone else. These are the five things that just get on my nerves, that just really make me angry. I mean, if I get honest, I become like Bill Bixby. I just, the incredible halt. when they do blank, it just argh, gets on my nerves. Just write that down for a moment. And if you want to do more than five, you go right ahead. Now, again, this is for your eyes only. All right, are you done? If you wrote more, just write a little bit later after this. Okay, now, you see that list? Here's a secret. It takes one to know one. The things that irritate you the most about other people are the things that God is trying to get your attention about in your life. You either have the same behavior or you have the same attitude. But because you've been ignoring it in your life, God keeps letting this person come in your life and it irritates you because you're not dealing with it yourself now why do I say that to you because if you're challenging someone in their sin and you're nasty and very critical and very harsh it's because God is trying to help you see yourself and instead of you dealing with them gently you're dealing with them harshly because you've been ignoring it in your own life you only lack patience with people who are just like you That's why that child that gets on your nerves the most is the one that's just like you. And what's happening is you're trying to kill it in them while you're ignoring it in yourself. That's why Jesus says, get the speck out of your eye, then you can clearly see. Or get the log out of your eye, and you can clearly see how to get the speck out of their eye. It irritates you so because you've been ignoring it. I remember one guy said, well, that's not true because I'm irritated when people are not on time, and I'm always on time. I said, sir, you're not irritated by the person's behavior. You are inconsiderate like they're inconsiderate. And so you've picked up on their attitude of inconsideration, and you're very inconsiderate in other areas of your life. That's why that irritates you. Because you may not have the same behavior, but you got the same hard attitude, and it takes one to know one. Another guy said, I don't agree with that. My son is lazy, and I'm going to keep hammering him about his laziness, and I'm going to keep going. I said, sir, I tell you what, you want to help him in his laziness, start coming to my class on time and get your work in on time, and then you can help him. He had nothing more to say. One guy comes to me and says, prof we've got a problem in my group. There's a guy that's a controller in this group, and here's what I want you to do about it. (laughs) Y'all caught that, didn't you? I said, so let me get this straight. There's a controller in the group, and it's irritating you, and you have a plan for what I need to do to fix it. That's right. Have you thought about why that controller bothers you so much, sir? Another person come to me. Prof, we've got a problem in this group there's a woman in the group and she just talks and talks and talks and goes on and on and on and she doesn't know when to be quiet and she just keeps saying stuff and it's bothering me because she just goes on and on and on and on and on and she's never quiet and she just keeps talking and it's really getting on my nerves she just goes on and on and on and on I'm going, really? I wonder why that bothers you so much. When you are challenging sin when there's no compassion and gentleness it takes one. To no one. And the very things that are irritating you are the things that you either attitude or heart have. You say, okay, you need to give me some Bible on that. I've heard you now, but you need to get scripture. Okay. Romans 2, 1 and 2. What does it say in Romans 2, 1 and 2? Can we look at that together for just a moment? You go, no, I don't want to look at that. (laughs) Romans 2, 1 and 2. Notice what he says. Therefore... You have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for that when you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge, do what? The word judge there is not used in the combination of 1 Corinthians 5, where it says we as Christians have the authority to judge. In 1 Corinthians 5, judge means to call out sin, to address it. In the context of Romans 2, Judge talks about condemning, being hyperly critical of someone else. And when you are hyperly critical, where you're just irritated at the sins of someone else, that's just so stupid and so ridiculous. How could they be that way? Yeah, how could you be that way? God is saying, you are practicing the same thing. We also see this in 2 Samuel, when Nathan had to confront David. And it says, David burned with anger. Well, David, why did that bother you so much about the story that Nathan was telling you? Because David was looking at himself. And now watch this. And I want to help you see this because when we talk about challenging sin, I need you to see your own heart so that you're gentle. Uh, When you are very arrogant, it's hard to come face to face and confront you directly. And what I've discovered is the more arrogant the person, the more indirect you have to be about their sin. And so I had a friend whose wife came to me and said, listen, can you talk to my husband? It's okay. Give me some things that's going on. And because I knew her husband and we were good friends, I knew that what she was saying was valid. So I wouldn't talk to him, but I also understood how I need to come at him. I said, Hey man, I got a story for you. I said, what would you do if you were at a church and the pastor was giving a solid word but his life was not matching his word. He said, see, man, that's the kind of stuff that gets on my nerves. See, that, and, and we need to start dealing with these kind of preachers that, that are just saying the truth and not living the truth. And he started going on and on. I said, well, brother, why does that bother you so much? Man, because it just doesn't make sense. And da da I said, you know what? That's exactly what your wife is saying about you. That you're saying some wonderful things, but your life isn't matching your preaching. And that opened the door for some true dialogue because I could not have been direct with him. He was too arrogant for me to be that direct. I had to be indirect and it worked. It takes one to know one. And those things that you're trying to nail in the lives of people, because you're going to get them straight because you're just sick and tired of that. God is saying, yeah. How's that working for you? Now, think about it this way. I love picking on married couples because it comes out so much. She, pastor, is so selfish. Really? Why? Because she could have did this for me and she was thinking about herself and blah, blah, blah. She's just so selfish. I said, so let me get this straight. She's not thinking about you as much as you're thinking about you. And that makes her selfish. Man, that girl, let's just take her outside and beat her. How dare she not think about you as much as you're thinking about you right now? You get my point? And what do couples do when they come to counseling? I am so irritated. They don't think. Really? So basically what you're saying is... What's important to you right now, they're not thinking about it because they're thinking about what's important to them. How dare they be so selfish and not be consumed with your agenda as you are. Let's just take them outside and beat them right now. Come on, let's go. I got my belt. Let's go beat them right now. Come on. It takes one to know one. See, philosophically, we don't get that. And I sit back and watch couples go through this, this game that they're playing, not understanding that they're irritated because they're both self-serving and self-centered. But that's too easy. It's got to be something deep. You know, when he was a child, he didn't have a mother. and all, that Ain't nothing to do with it. You're selfish. He's selfish. <laughs> you get where I'm going? But see, that's too easy. It's got to be complicated. It's not that complicated. What's really happening here, you've got two people, and I'll tell them a story. I'll say, let me ask you this. When you're on the freeway... And someone cuts you off on the freeway. Oh, pastor, that is just the worst. I know, isn't it it terrible? But why does that bother you so much? Well, because they're so inconsiderate. So let me get this straight. What really bothers you is that they're not thinking about you in that moment as much as you're thinking about you, huh? Because when you cut them off, it's different. You're trying to get to work. You get my point. It's always so simple when it's another man's toothache. But when it's yours, oh, it's drama. But if we understand this, if you were to deal with your own own heart, you wouldn't have that same issue with that person. And you could patiently handle their sin. Does that make sense to you? It takes one to know one. And I sit back and I love to let people fight in counseling. Oh, it's fun to me. I'll ask the right question, and I'll sit back and do this. And I'll let it get real heated, you know. Oh, no, you didn't. Yes, you did. Oh, you're going to say this in front of him? You're going to... Go, 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 go. And then I'll ask a simple question. Now, let me ask you guys something. Who started this fight? What are they going to say? The other going to say he or she did, right? And then I'll ask another question. Who's right? And that starts it all over again. I sit back and let them go at it. Here's what I'm trying to show them. You both came to me believing that the other person is the problem. But can you show me where either one of you were walking by the fruit of the spirit right now in that display with me? Can you show me where any one of you were walking in love for the other person and for God at this moment? What you wanted in that moment was so obvious And that is how you've been living in this marriage. You've been living for what you want for so long, you think it's right to be ugly. And it's gotten to the point where you don't mind being ugly even in front of me, your pastor. But what I want you to understand is the problem is not your spouse. It's you. And God is using your spouse to show you, you, it takes one to know one. I told you how selfish he was before you married him. I told you how stubborn she was before you married her. But you didn't believe me because you weren't seeing them for who they were. You were seeing them for what you wanted. And it was okay that she was stubborn and he was selfish as long as you were getting what you want. But now that you're not getting what you want, now we need counseling. And all we're seeing are two selfish people who are irritated who need to repent. It takes one to know. Now, why am I going through all this detail? Because I want you to understand the way you confront sin reveals a lot about you. And if there's no compassion and care, if there's a lot of irritation and frustration and you just need, they need to just get it fixed, then what you've just revealed in that moment is how much you and that person are the same. I have two daughters, and one is a lot like me. And so I'm sitting in the bed with my wife. I said, you know, that daughter of yours is really getting on my nerves. You need to do something with her. She is just so stubborn. My wife rolled over. She said, honey, I wonder why that bothers you so much. I said, oh, hate it when you're right. (laughs) But what was she exposing to me? You can't deal with her until you deal with your stubbornness. And as I started to work on my stubbornness, I had more patience with my daughter and her stubbornness. And it's not a bigger issue to me as it used to be because I had to start dealing with me. Now, as you see that, that's, again, I just wanted to take some time there. We're talking about confronting sin. Now, number four. Here's a big one. Please put stars by this. Characterize sovereign. Characterize sovereign. What do we mean by that? Discuss the aspects of God's character that will be appropriate to discuss in relation to the situation dialogue about how those aspects of god's character can be used for warning and teaching the person accordingly in the situation to according to or in relation to the situation so as they're telling you the situation and they're talking about these things you may have to say you know what i know you may not understand this right now but there's a god who is an all-wise god And this all-wise God knows the best course of action and he has the power to accomplish the best course of action. Not only is this God a wise God, this God is so sovereign. He's in control of everything that happens in your life. And nothing happens unless he allows it or ordains it. But ultimately, this God is a loving God. He has your best interests at heart. And I'm sure that if there was another way for this to happen in your life, The God who's sovereign, the God who's all wise, and the God who loves you would have made it work. But for whatever reason, he's allowed it to happen this way. What do you think he wants you to embrace about him? And what do you think he wants you to change in you? You see what we're doing here? we're helping them to begin to get a biblical picture. We've commended submission. We are consoling the suffering. We're confronting the sin, but we're helping them to see that God is in the midst of all of this. Number five, communicate salvation. If we don't believe these people belong to Jesus Christ, we need to present the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to provide guidance into receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ. Number six, clarify sanctification. Teach the specific sins that need to be put off and how to do it through the word of God. Tutor the specific solutions that need to be put on in place of specific sins that demonstrate love for God and love for others through the word of God. Number seven, celebrate summation. This world is not all there is. And we need to be reminding Christians that there's a promise of his return and there's a prize with that return now I want you to turn the page and what I've tried to do with you out of everything I've shared I've tried to give you a chart to help you to summarize it you said well we could have just started there and finished like four sessions ago right <laughs> well that would have taken all the fun out of it man okay okay So if you notice, almost everything we've covered today, I tried to give you a chart so that you can think about it in terms of a overview big picture. So if someone were to ask you, well, what did you talk about in five sessions? Well, here is the big picture overview of everything we talked about in big picture. And my goal of that is for you to go back and that way you can have a review, a way that you can think about this whole thing. Because it's gonna take you some time to process all of this. And I wanted you to have a system. So, part of my challenge to you today is to go back, think through the phases and stages of change. Think about the categories of homework, okay? If you said, What's the most important part of this? From my perspective, that is the most important part that you can begin to master because everybody has to go through those phases and stages of change and homework is a way to help them in the process and the concepts are just ways to help you think about people in in general so I want to close by encouraging you you can do this it can be done